oftentimes those stories are attributed to parental struggles or um, nostalgia or memories of the motherland. And there's also so many other topics. Obviously, um, a lot of these things are things that we see in the mainstream. And it almost kind of feels like we're essentializing our narratives um, in order to feed into what the mainstream expects our experience to be. And I wanted to kind of see if there's a way where we can get away from that, where we can really share our stories as ourselves rather than, you know, saying that this is our, our experience because I am Asian, because I am Korean. Hello, and welcome to Inside Out the podcast about badass millennials living out their dreams and how they got there. I'm your host, Jane Z. Hi, friends. So I don't know about you, but I've been feeling kind of off these past few weeks and months. I know it's been like a weird time overall for the whole world, but I'm feeling especially weird the past few weeks. I'll get super pumped and go all out with work and podcasting and working out. And then every two weeks, without fail, my body will just hit a wall and turn into a potato. It's not sustainable. I know I'm burnt out. Um, but in talking to a bunch of people this week, I realized that a lot of people are going through the same thing. And you guys, I think I found the culprit. And you're going to laugh. But ding, ding, ding. Mercury is in retrograde. Pew, pew. That was supposed to be like spaceship sounds. Anyway, um, don't worry, I'm not going to turn this into an astrology podcast, but I did want to share two fun facts I learned recently. One, retrograde is an actual phenomenon in astronomy where it looks like a planet is moving backwards in their orbit at that moment in time from where we see it on Earth. You can Wikipedia this, but shout out to Sarah Ballard for explaining that to me. She was actually our first ever guest on this podcast. She's this superstar astrophysicist and professor so go check out that episode after this the other thing i learned is that in astrology mercury is a planet of communication so if you've been having problems with technology or getting your roommate to do the dishes or connecting with your partner this could be the reason there's actually a website called ismercuryinretrograde.com which i find hilarious first of all and if you go there it literally says yes we're in retrograde uh, until february 20th so there you have it if you go to the website make sure you check out the contact page because the faqs are just some quality comedic content anyway on to the real reason you're listening to this today we have on the show two lovely ladies who co-founded a magazine called choa harriet kim and mary lee are both korean canadian creatives well, that's a lot of Ks. Um, anyway, they're sort of Korean-Canadian, and we talk about what that means in a few minutes. They met at a workshop that Mire ran a few years ago on zine making, and they hit it off talking about food, and then they started having all these deep conversations about Korean culture and identity and why Koreans weren't really talking about things like climate change. And hence, Choa Magazine was born. It's an online platform for Korean diasporic stories. They released the first volume with the theme of water, and there's some great pieces we talk about, including an installation about Korean bathhouses. And now they have a call for submissions for their second volume, which is on the theme of home-cooked food. 
very relevant for these quarantine times, as I like to say. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen for stories like this every Tuesday. And if you really want to make my day, go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star rating. All you have to do is click the five stars. And if you want, you can say something like, I love listening to this podcast when I wash the dishes or make your roommate say that. (laughs) Anyway, simple as that. Without further ado, on to today's show. So I want to hear a bit about both your childhoods. Um, maybe we can start with you, Mary. Can you talk about growing up Korean-Canadian and also, you know, growing up mostly in Canada, being physically apart from your family? What was what was that experience like? Sure. Um, so I immigrated to Canada when I was seven and I grew up there. Uh, well, my parents have always been in Korea and my brother was actually born in Korea when I was in Canada as well. Um, so he's living a totally different life than me being educated in Korea and all that. So I have been living literally physically distant from my parents and my brother um, until, I guess, recently when I um, moved to Singapore. So I'm definitely a lot closer to them now. But even then, like moving away from Canada or leaving Canada wasn't a very difficult decision for me, even though I've lived in Canada for like 17 years and I grew up there and have friends there and stuff. But my because my family has always been in Korea. And now that I'm in Singapore, I'm just like a five hour flight away from them. Um, so that is a better decision than me staying in Canada, basically, for my family. Um, so in that way, I guess for me, there was always that kind of close proximity to Korea. Um, and so it was very natural for me to, you know, not forget about the Korean language, be very attuned to current trends and affairs and politics and all that that's happening in Korea. And, you know, I, I think my kind of immigrant first gen narrative is very different from kind of the typical mainstream narratives in that sense. I moved to Canada Uh, obviously without my decision because I was so young Um, but also it was just by circumstance that during that time it was good for me to move to Canada with my aunt Um, so I kind of see myself more as a Korean who happened to have a Canadian citizenship Um, so I don't really see myself as a Korean hyphen Canadian and maybe Harriet you can jump in and and maybe help us define like what Korean hyphen Canadian might look like Uh, sure I it might help for me to talk a little bit about how how I grew up. So I I guess I would be considered a second gen since I was born in Canada, raised here. Um, I would say though, like Mary, I don't necessarily fall into the um, the sort of mainstream narrative around what it means to be a second gen. And also I think my family's sort of migration story is probably a little bit different from what you might expect from this sort of typical story around that. Um, So I was just thinking a lot about what does it mean to have a traditional Korean family? So for me, I guess it's um, a little bit of a mix. We've always eaten Korean food, you know, and sometimes it would smell kind of weird because of all the fermentation stuff my grandmother used to do. Um, I went to Korean language school on Saturday mornings and started watching cartoons. Grew up going to a Korean specific church on Sundays and was very active in youth group. And I think these are all very sort of traditional markers of maybe 
the Korean experience in Canada. But in other ways, I think I uh, uh, I think the answer is no because I my mom moved here when she was quite young. Um, she, over 40 years ago, she moved here with her parents, and a lot of her siblings were already here. So I grew up with a lot of family here in North America, and I think that has impacted a lot of the ways that I grew up. Even in the smallest ways, like I was that kid that went to school with Lunchables and Dungaroos, whereas I think a lot of other Korean kids, whether or not they are immigrants themselves or child of immigrants, I think a lot of them have the sort of traditional um, smelly lunchbox story. But that's not something I think in my, it wasn't a very prominent in my life. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the Dunkaroos and Lunchables because I was always the kid who was jealous of the kids who had that. I was like, oh man, those look so fun. And I would get like a banana success. And um, I don't know if anyone else has had this for lunch, but my mom would pack me a sausage and a hard boiled egg. And that was just my lunch uh, for many years until we moved on to other things. But yeah, it's interesting. Like food is such a prominent aspect of uh, intermixing cultures, right? Like in our, our family, we would have traditional Chinese food, but on weekends, we'd also have pizza with kanji and you get this like cool mixture of things. Um, and food is something that you guys kind of a topic that you guys met through, right? Can you talk a bit about how you both met? Yeah. So we met through, a zine making workshop that Mireille had organized and facilitated, um, which was about food. And um, it was a workshop that she hosted through a collective called Project 40, which Mireille can talk a little bit more about. We have a mutual friend that I actually did thank for, because she posted about the event on her Facebook and that's how I found out about it. And I guess the rest is history. I guess, uh, after those conversations, it was actually really like two years ago. So that would be like 2018. I believe it was around summer. We met at a park and kind of officially kind of sat down and we were like, okay, like we really want to kind of start something where we can bring together Korean female diaspora, especially creatives. Um, I would say those food conversations and all those conversations led to this kind of moment where we're like, okay, we really want to create something like an actual platform. I want you guys to talk about the grandma taste that you mentioned last time we chatted. Something else you share in common is taste in, what is it like food that's not trendy or something like that? So the grandma taste, I think it was more me <laughs> where <laughs> I, um, I tend to prefer food that I guess, typically is more traditional or more catered towards older people taste. So for example, there is like kanjanggejang, which is like a raw crab in soy sauce. There's also hejangkuk, which is like cow blood curds in a spicy soup. So they're very, um, they, they may sound really gross, but I love them. And whenever you, you go to these restaurants in Korea, you always see older people, my grandmas and grandpas. And it's always me and my brother who's the youngest because we go as a family. And my, um, and my brother obviously has to eat it because his sister wants it. <laughs> so we're always the youngest one. For me, whenever people ask me, oh, like, what's your favorite Korean food? I would always kind of refer to these very obscure food that I don't think a lot of people in North America would know. I don't think they even sell it in North America, some of these food, but yeah. 
Maybe that could be a side business starting like <laughs> a chain of like grandma style Korean food. I bet other people would like it. They probably just don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I got to introduce <laughs> to them first. <laughs> yeah. Harriet, what's your favorite Korean food? Uh, I guess the short answer, I always default to something called miyokguk, which is seaweed soup. Traditionally, you eat on your birthday and um, a lot of pregnant women and eat it. And also when you, when you have just given birth. When we had met at Mireille's zine making workshop, that was the thing that I focused my part of the zine on. It was something that I really love about Korean food is that there is always like a time and a season for certain food. So miyokguk is something that I always associate with birthdays. And then so for New Year's Day, my family always eats karbichim, which is braised short ribs and mandu miyokguk, which is soup with my, uh, like the dumplings and the rice cakes. And so that's something I always associate with New Year's Day. So I associate different foods with different happy memories. And so it's hard to pick just one. Yeah, I love that. That's making me think of like certain Chinese dishes too. Like, yeah, the rice cakes like we have for New Year's and we have dumplings for certain, I should know this, but a certain festival too. Yeah, I love how like everything has its meaning and has its story. So Choa Magazine, starting from the basics, what uh, what does the word Choa mean? And what's the origin story behind the magazine? So the name Choa, it has multiple meanings, um, three meanings. One is as a pure Korean word, it means a person who lights themselves up to brighten the world in a hancha way. So hancha is the traditional Chinese characters because that's where the Korean language derived from. It means grass shoots. It's very different from what the pure Korean word means. And then chua is also a name for a woman. Um, there's actually a very popular K-pop idol with that name. We're very fascinated by these kind of vague kind of definitions of this word. At the same time, I mean, the idea of a person who's kind of helping to brighten the world, that is also very beautiful as well. And the process of even finding this name was, was so long. It was so many meetings, so many hours of like trying to figure out what's the best thing to do. We started off with various like English words that were very generic, like still searching. <laughs> it's a very generic kind of word where we're like, oh, like maybe we can like put some Korean aspect to it. So we like went through a bunch of Korean flowers and birds that were native to Korea. And then I think I, I had asked my dad if he could, if he knew any um, pure Korean words that we could use. And he sent me a website which had like 100 plus list of all these words. So I went through every single one of them, um, chose a few, sent it to Harry. I'd be like, okay, like here are like my top five out of that list. What do you think about them? Um, mm -hmm. And then that, yeah, and that's where we chose Choa. But it was <laughs> a lot of meetings. I think it took us like a couple of months. <laughs> yeah, that took us so much I mean, with good reason, obviously, we wanted to pick the right name with the right feel with the right meaning. We also were very conscious of the fact of like, how easy is this word to pronounce in English? I think Choa is very easy, very short, kind of rolls off the tongue. Um, one of the ones that we had thought of was in Korean, it's harmikot, I think. But when you write it in English, it kind of sounds like harmi, harmikot. 
like the way you spell it and we were just like oh how many times is it are we going to have to correct people and so that was also an important factor of picking a name like Choa. Yeah I love Choa it's short simple easy to pronounce and now Mm -hmm. I know the meaning which it has three which is super cool and had either of you you know studied journalism or publishing or anything like that? So both of us we haven't studied journalism um, and we this is our first time actually starting a magazine so it's been quite a process, but we have friends that have experience starting magazines and running one. So we were definitely inspired by them and definitely got a lot of advice from them as well. Um, For me in university, one of my major was sociocultural anthropology. Uh, It's a very long title, but um, basically it's a lot of focus on field research, ethnography. So really going out and kind of engaging with the people. So that definitely influences how I engage and interact with people. And obviously that feeds into my work in Choa. But I would say it's really my work in the Toronto community art scene. Um, So Project 40, which is the workshop that Harriet mentioned, it's a Pan-Asian artist collective. And I've been part of it for four years. I obviously left because I'm in Singapore now. But during those four years of kind of being part of this kind of Asian diasporic community, Um, supporting them, contributing to the art scene or the arts and culture scene. It definitely had a bigger influence, I would say, than my um, university education in terms of um, how I think about the word community, how I think about diaspora, how we share our stories, how we kind of engage with various issues. So like Mira said, I did not study journalism in school. I um, studied... uh, um, international development and environmental sciences. And it was actually specifically like water ecosystems I studied. And then I went on to study food security. All of my studies have been really essential for opening up my eyes to the world. And it really gave me like a really important kind of framework to think about a lot of these various issues. Um, I think more importantly, the kinds of people that I met really sort of challenged me, I think, more than the actual content of my studies. Uh, so after my studies, one of the things I, I have done is work in the publishing field and specifically in the academic publishing sector, which is very different from publishing a magazine. But that was quite interesting to give me some of the terminology of publishing. What were you thinking about more recently with the first volume of Choa? Actually, so originally the idea was to talk about the climate crisis. The climate crisis, I think, is always pretty topical. One of the things that happened in 2019 was that there was a Canadian election, a federal election, where three Korean women in Toronto, they ran for office as candidates with the new Democratic Party. So they all ran with these really rad, very progressive platforms and felt like kind of a shift in, because traditionally, I think a lot of the people that would run from the Korean Canadian community for elected office were traditionally older Korean men uh, from like suburban neighborhoods, um, usually for the Conservative Party. These three people had run with a very platform with a priority on the climate crisis. And it just felt like there was a sort of public shift in the community. We thought, okay, um, maybe we'll talk about the climate crisis, but 
I think very quickly realized there's just so much to talk about. Um, but I will say that um, everything we've kind of done so far it has been within the context of the climate crisis with the first volume. Uh, and so water is, I, I think, particularly interesting, not just for me, because um, I mean, I think evidently I'm fascinated by it because I studied so much so that I studied it. But um, water, I think, in particular, just holds so many different meanings, um, whether that's for science or for spirituality and religion or sport, even. It's, it kind of has this like all encompassing factor, just um, maybe a more accessible um, gateway into talking about this crisis that we're in the midst of. Yeah. And I, I'd like to also add that. So we have in volume one, I think we have around seven pieces and they're not all specifically around the climate crisis. We wanted to kind of open up the topic of water to kind of see what other relationships that people have with it. Um, so we do have some pieces where, for example, this artist named Kat, she had had an installation um, about Korean bathhouses. And she kind of talked about how, how important a Korean bathhouse is as a social kind of gathering place um, within the Korean culture. Um, we have another piece by James Jolie. She's a, she makes music and she also acts and she made us a really beautiful music video um, where she kind of honors water um, and kind of talks about the power of water and its kind of strength of healing. Um, so we wanted to kind of open up more into this topic, kind of shows the different sides of water and how they exist and how important water is. Yeah, absolutely. And it ties together, you know, both your backgrounds in kind of the anthropological, the cultural aspects and the environmental aspects where, you know, water is life-sustaining and it literally flows into all of these cultural activities. Um, I did go to Korea once and I got to go to one of these bathhouses and it's mm. crazy. It's, I mean, it's so fun. You like, well, first you get over the discomfort of being naked in front of strangers, <laughs> but then like people just spend hours there in those like little beach rooms or like they have the rock rooms or you like sit on hot rocks, but it's such a great way to spend a day and relax, especially in the winter. Have you guys yeah. spent much time in bathhouses? We, we actually both had a conversation with Kat as well. Um, it's on our IGTV where we kind of talked about our experience of being in a, a Korean bathhouse, which is Mogyeoktang. I've been there a few times because my mom always tells me, every time I visit Korea, my mom's like, you got to go. You got to get rid of all the dirt in your body. I'm like, okay. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And whenever I go, I always see the same kind of grandmas and, you know, women who are just there every day. Just it's kind of like a ritual, I guess, for them. So yeah, so it was really great that Kat made this kind of installation that mimicked in Mogyeoktang, but in, in Toronto, obviously. And obviously there's so many diverse audiences that come and see it, but they are all kind of gathering around in these kind of benches, I guess, where people can just sit down. I guess in a real Mogyeoktang, they would be sitting there and kind of scrubbing their body and stuff. But in the installation, they're all just sitting down and kind of sharing their own stories about about water, about all of these kind of different things. So it was really interesting to see a replication of it, I guess. Um, and it was all made in, with paper. So that was also very fascinating. Wow. She made the benches out of paper? It was all in paper. Yeah. I, I'm not sure exactly what's under the bench, but yeah. <laughs> wow. Is, is there like a specific Korean craft that's like paper making? Paper is, um, I mean, hanji, which is Oh, I don't know what the English 
term is, um, but it's kind of a naturally handmade paper. And that's a very mm -hmm. popular kind of medium um, in Korean traditional art. Um, so paper definitely is very important. So I guess in that way, Kat was also kind of playing on that kind of traditional art form. Interesting. You know, your platform of Choa is, you call it a magazine, but you do curate, you know, exhibition pieces and different forms of art. How do you capture these different mediums? Uh, that's a good question. I think it helps, first of all, that we are online. I think there, that in itself kind of gives us a little bit more freedom than the sort of traditional paper magazine. And it also allows us to open up the format, you know, to also include a music video. I don't think we could have done that with a traditional paper magazine. And so I think in that way, we have it a, a little bit easier to kind of try new things and push maybe the boundaries of what a magazine can look like. So for the first piece, we all of them were commissioned pieces. Um, and so that was a lot of collaborative work um, for what feels good for what we're trying to do and also for the contributor. We had a lot of support from other people. So with audio editing and copy editing. So it was a real sort of team effort and um, behind the scenes and also just with the art itself. Like I think it helped to have all these sorts of eyes on the different pieces. And yeah, Mira, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Yeah, we are very new. And I think we're still trying to figure out what this idea of curating means. Um, and so for volume two, we are doing a call for submissions. So that will be something totally new for us as well. We're also kind of commissioning pieces. Um, when you say commissioning pieces, is there any funding involved? Yeah, so we did uh, run an Indiegogo campaign um, spring of last year or, or so. This project is not only is it very collaborative and sort of the curation part of it, but in terms of funding, very community-based. Um, so we were able to provide a small honorarium for everyone who's helped bring this magazine to life. Um, that includes the contributors and also people working behind the scenes. Um, yeah, when we commissioned, we just, uh, we brainstormed a lot of people who we knew were doing really interesting work. And so we reached out to them and asked them to be a part of this. Yeah, and from my experience uh, working in the community art scene, also seeing like what other people are doing in terms of magazines, we both knew that how important it is to, um, pay people even if it's not a lot um, even if it's a small honorarium we knew it was very important um, so that is also why we started it can we kicked off with a campaign and we still and we have a donation section as well on our website we also have all these kind of handmade products I guess um, we have postcards we have notebooks etc so just other ways to kind of continue being more financially sustainable so that yeah. we can pay more people <laughs> in the future yeah, that's very thoughtful and so important for the arts community. I actually didn't know that you guys did an Indiegogo campaign. I'm curious to hear more about that. Yeah, I if I can like sum it up really quickly, like running an Indiegogo campaign and fundraising in general is just damn hard. I applaud anyone that does that full time, especially, but or any sort of labor in that is just I applaud you. It was a lot of work. Um Personally, I learned a lot in terms of like budgeting, I guess, like how can how much can we reasonably ask for people in an initial run was I think even that sort of practice is I think also a good exercise to go through. There were just so many moving parts about that in terms of like marketing it, you know, getting the word out, reaching out to people, 
Mireille, again, did all the, the design stuff for that. So that was also extra labor on her part. Yeah, I mean, it's a, like uh, Harriet said, it's a very laborious process and not just marketing, but we would have to constantly update people of like the progress, you know, what we're currently doing just to keep them knowing that, hey, like, I know you gave us some money, but, and we want to let you know what's happening. Yeah, it was a lot of kind of always staying on top of everything. <laughs> Yeah. It's like running a social media account, I guess. You always just have to be looking for everything. Yeah, Even just totally. staying on top of the timeline, I was like, it's very tedious in terms of making sure you're hitting all your milestones. Oh, yeah. It's a full-time job. Um, yeah. We had Brianne Leeming, the CEO and founder of Unruly Studios, on a few episodes ago. She ran a Kickstarter campaign to launch her education company. And the biggest lesson, I mean, she learned so much there and she has been running her company for five or six years now, but some of her early supporters from that campaign are still, you know, big supporters today. Um, so that is like so important in terms of community building, but also in keeping up momentum. Like you gotta be running before the campaign and afterwards. For you guys, like what kind of audience have you started to build already? Like who do you see reaching out and responding? I think by nature of how much we how much of the work has been online, I think tends to be a bit of a younger audience. My best guess is maybe people like anyone under the age of maybe 40. A big portion of that uh, group tends to be Korean, I guess, by nature of our mission statement, but definitely hoping to reach other, other demographics as well. So you guys consciously made the decision to not specifically talk about Korean identity, even though this is a magazine by and for Korean diaspora. Can you talk a bit about that decision? I guess the idea of what Choa um, is trying to do kind of came for, I think, a mutual kind of um, feeling towards what kind of conversations were happening in the Korean diaspora or I guess at large in the Asian diaspora. And for me, um, I've been seeing a lot of conversations about Asian American or Asian Canadian experiences that are that have specific um, immigrant or diasporic narratives um, and usually revolving around identity. Oftentimes those stories are attributed to parental struggles or um, nostalgia or memories of the motherland. And there's also so many other topics. Obviously, um, a lot of these things are things that we see in the mainstream. And it almost kind of feels like we're essentializing our narratives um, in order to feed into what the mainstream expects our experience to be. And oftentimes there's a risk of also romanticizing our experiences as well, our hardships, our struggles. Um, and I wanted to kind of see if there's a way where we can kind of get away from that, um, where we can really share our stories as ourselves rather than, you know, saying that, we are, this is our, our experience because of these reasons, because I am Asian, because I am Korean. I think that was also plays a role in terms of what we're trying to do with Choa in order to kind of really look at the nuances and the complexities of our experience um, of not just sharing the same kind of tropes, I guess, of our narratives, but also relating it to various bigger issues of politics, like the crime or the environment, like the climate crisis, or other kind of sociocultural issues, to really understand our experience of kind of being in this world and navigating this world. In that way, we are being more conscious, I guess, in terms of kind of going away from the mainstream ident identity talk to 
share more, I guess, alternative ways of understanding our experience and our stories. Yeah, that makes sense to me in a weird way. It's like, I should be able to have conversations that are whole about things like climate change or politics and everything in between. And my, you know, Asian identity, it colors that, but it shouldn't take away from my participating in that conversation. Cool. Well, let's talk about the next volume of Choa. What theme do you guys have for us? The theme of it is chip up, which literally translates to home rice, but it's like the traditional sort of translation of it is a home cooked meal. Yeah. So um, I, I know for a lot of us, we're very fortunate to experience the various good feelings around chip up, uh, you know, the emotional nourishment, the warmth um, that comes with it, with having a nice like home cooked meal. Um, and so with this volume, we really want to explore what factors, what forces kind of allow us to enjoy that sense of warmth and familial connection. Um, so some of the questions that we are have already started thinking about is who are the people that grow the food? Who are the people that are stocking the shelves and cleaning the floors of grocery stores? Who are your butchers? Who who are who are the people that are working at this uh, meat meat packing plants? You know all these questions of what makes it possible to for us to enjoy these things. We're also and relating it to water as well in terms of the climate crisis. In terms of you know like will we be able to enjoy? the dishes that we're enjoying right now um, in the future with all this kind of natural disasters that are happening. Um, so who are, the, who are the farmers? Who are, what's happening with our crops? Um, so those are the questions that we want to get into. Obviously there's also other things that could come up with Chip Up. That's why we're doing a call for submissions and I'm sure there'll be a lot of different stories that come from it. Yeah, so what kind of submissions are you guys looking for? Like what format and who's eligible to submit something? We're accepting anything, basically, in terms of visual art, photography, video, nonfiction, fiction, or poetry. And it's open to anyone. Um, it's, so first of all, we want to emphasize that it's not just for artists and creatives. Um, it's open to anyone with various backgrounds and experiences. For example, for volume one, we had someone who was a financial advisor or a firefighter. So we we're very open to um, anyone, basically, in any fields. Um, but specifically, obviously, someone who identify as Korean, um, whether they're mixed or adopted, and also anyone who is a woman who identify their gender identity as a female. And we encourage submissions from members from different parts of the community, um, including people with disabilities, the LGBTQ community, and also across generations. So it'd be really great if we, we could get um, submissions or even an interview with someone who's not the younger generation, but someone who's older as well. So yeah, so we're very open, I guess. That's kind of what we're trying to do. And the submission deadline is March 31st, 2021. And are you guys looking for submissions only in English or will it be bilingual? Um, we, we're accepting both English and Korean. Um, obviously with Korean, we will need to do some translation work. The translation could be done by the person themselves um, if they want. Um, or I could also support with the translations because um, I'm currently working as a translator right now as well. Um, so yeah, so we're open to both languages. It just, we just need to be able to read it, both of us. <laughs> um, I think Miri and I talk a lot about Canada and our first volume, everyone was 
based in Canada, but you don't have to be based in Canada to submit,、um, which I guess is the beauty of having an online magazine. But unfortunately, we can't accept non-Korean, non-English languages. This will maybe be a good time to give a little shout out to my dad because right now I'm working at a shop and he owns a printing and graphic design shop, and so we were able to do. We've been able to print everything through my dad,、um, so giving him a little shout out.、Um, so everything for Indiegogo、um, and currently our shop, all the stuff that you can find on our shop、um, has been through him. So could not have done it without his printing services. Yay! Thank you, Mr. Kim. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there anything else you guys want to chat about before we wrap up? Uh, if we could just like plug all the things that we talked about, so our Instagram is at Choa Magazine, our website is choamagazine.com, where you can find the shop and also the button to donate and also the form to sign up for our newsletter. It's all there. So for our newsletter, we that's where we kind of. Include exclusive content that's related to the volume theme. So recently, we've been talking about water, but obviously, it's only exclusively in the newsletter.、Um, we and that's also where we、um, give our first announcements of exciting things like the call for submissions. So all of our current subscribers have already gotten the call for submissions、uh, way before in December. So that's where you kind of get the I guess the goodies. <laughs>、um, so do sign up. <laughs> Yeah, sign up for the newsletter. I'll leave the links in the episode description, so definitely go check those guys out. Well, Harriet and Mirai, thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great chatting with both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again to the ladies behind Choa for coming on the show, and thank you for tuning in. What did you think of this episode? You can take 10 seconds to leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, and make sure you drop some stars. And if we're not already friends on Instagram, make sure you follow at Inside Out with Jane. If you're an email person, you can always drop me a line at hello at insideoutwithjane.com. I definitely want to hear what you guys think.、Um, I'm always looking for ideas for future episodes, guests you want to bring on. Yeah, let me know. All right, hope you survived this first week of February, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday. Bye.